Hey there, welcome to night school. It's been a while since I've sat down. Hasn't just, I don't know, probably hasn't been too long, probably 10 days, 11 days. Just been very busy, finally having to take care of things that I've put off for close to two years. Hopefully, hopefully this won't be too much of a transitory period for me. That's kind of what I'm hoping to prevent by finally taking care of things now. But you never know. The point is, you got to take care of things eventually. Feeling good, though. Feeling like, I mean, it's it's good when you don't have any downtime. It's good when you're just working on things continuously. Because you never have those moments of boredom. Like, even if you're not totally enthralled, even if you're not entertained by whatever it is you're doing, it's good to not have that downtime. Because that's when the devil gets to you. That's when the demons get to you. That's when you start to hear the voices of phantoms in your head arguing with you. That's when you have arguments and debates with phantoms that usually never even manifest. It's during that downtime. It's during that boredom. So it's nice when that's not going on. Although it still happens, of course. <laughs> you know, you can't ever beat away the phantoms completely. But I've been going through a lot of stuff, a lot of my mom's stuff that I hadn't bothered dealing with. Because, you know, Coronavi gave me every excuse in the world. Like when your mom dies and you're in a fairly stable situation and then the entire world shuts down, so you can't even do things if you wanted to do them. You can't even take care of things if you wanted to. It gives you every excuse in the world, and then just one thing after another comes up. Politics were a distraction. They, I guess they still are for many, pe- for many people. They always will be. But I'm finally having to go through things, try to sell some things, try to get rid of some things. And it's not difficult. You know, I have to say, I mean, I've accepted my mom's death pretty easily, considering how close I was to her. Her death itself hasn't been much of an issue. It's the practicalities that have actually been the bigger problem. And that's not to say that I don't miss her or that I wouldn't prefer for her to be here. It's just the simple fact that she died. (laughs) And because of the simple fact that she died, as we all do, what's the point in sitting around being like, gee, I wish she was still here? You know, so the reality is what I have to deal with are practical matters, some of which I'm willing to put off indefinitely, some of which I'm willing to put off for as long as possible. But some of them I do have to deal with, and one of those is going through her things, you know, and... uh, You know, it was good, though, because, I mean, I hadn't cried in a very long time. You want to hear about how I cried? Uh, No, I I hadn't cried in a very long time about her or anything else. And I went through this cabinet she had of personal things, and it was, you know, stuff related to the kids, me and my sister. But there was also just a bunch of her astrology stuff, and some of it went back to the 70s, like old astrology charts and pamphlets. And she wasn't a new-agey person. You know, she was a very down-to-earth person who was raised on a farm in Missouri and, you know, made a life for herself as a stewardess before she met my dad. And it's very fascinating to me that she always gravitated toward astrology. She always had some sense that reincarnation—she uh, just had a sense 
for reincarnation, I guess would be a way to put it. Like she always believed that that happens in some form or way. And that was something she just found on her own. You know, nobody, she, she wasn't somebody who really got into the style of the day. Like she wasn't a hippie in the 60s, even though she graduated high school in 1966. And she, of course, dressed in some of the fashions of the era. She didn't become a hippie. You know, she didn't join any trends. She just always gravitated toward certain spiritual subject matter and truly believed it and didn't try to share it with other with other people. So that's actually what got me crying is just going through those books. And I a friend of mine was here helping me do some of this. And I said to her, I was just like, you know, she was just such an interesting person. And that's why I was crying. I was crying because it would just I was just thinking about she was just such an interesting person. A lot of the world knew her to be very sweet, very kind, very helpful. But there was also this other side to her that was very personal. Like she didn't try to share that stuff with other people. She didn't try to preach about her spiritual beliefs, not even to me. You know, as a kid, she didn't try to force me to believe what she believed, but it came up casually. And a big part of that is the death thing. As I've said on here before, I didn't know how helpful it was to have a parent that was comfortable with death until my parent actually died. You know, and in the actual moments as she died and after she died, I was immediately grateful for those conversations that troubled me a little bit when I was a kid. Like when I was five years old and my mom would occasionally be like, well, you know, I'm going to die someday. And it's not like she sat me down and it was morbid. It would just come up sometimes naturally in the same way that parents have to talk to their kids about any difficult subject. In the same way that a parent has to tell their kid about earthquakes and it's terrifying. I remember the day I found out about earthquakes. <laughs> I was so fucking scared of earthquakes when I found out about them. The idea that this could happen at any moment and it could be devastating. You know, you, you see footage of it. You know, it terrified me when I found out about earthquakes. I remember the day. Maybe it wasn't the first day that I ever heard of earthquakes, but it was the day that I understood the reality of earthquakes. And death is the same thing, you know, it's something that can just happen. And I'm grateful that, you know, my parents didn't die when I was a kid because that can really screw with you. But my mom would casually mention it. And then over the years into adulthood, we would have some philosophical conversations about death right up until she died. We would have those conversations. And I, don't re I didn't realize the value of that until she actually died. But the trouble with that is that it's so hard to talk to other people about it. Because I've realized how uncomfortable people are with the idea of their own death, the, death of, the deaths of their loved ones. You know, I might have mentioned it on here, but it was about two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. My horoscope said, expect a visit from your mother today. Expect a, uh, expect a visit from your mother today. And I laughed about it because it's like, oh, yeah, my mom's dead. Am I going to see her ghost? What's going to happen? And I just sent that to a few friends and... I included like a ha-ha with it, but a couple of them responded with sympathetic messages. And these are guys. These are, guys, these are people who aren't sensitive people. And another one of them never responded. And I was like, even though I communicated to them that I was laughing about it, and not a forced laugh, 
I legitimately thought it was funny that my mom is dead and my horoscope said expect a visit from your mother. But I realized, oh, they're not comfortable with it. Even though these people do talk about death and they're comfortable with the idea, their parents are all alive. And they might not be comfortable with jokes about, they might, they just don't understand. It's something they simply haven't been through. Let's keep it to that. It's something they simply have not experienced. It is a total mystery to them. You know, I had this coworker at an old job, and her mom died a couple years before mine did. And when my mom died, she said something incredible to me. She contacted me and said, when your parent dies, it's like you're a part of this secret club. And I think she said a sad secret club. And I don't think of it that way. I don't think of it as a sad club. You know, it is, the loss is sad, but still, I don't think of it as a sad club. But I think she was spot on about that, that it is like being part of a secret club. And even talking to these good friends of mine, even making a casual joke involving the death of my mom to these good friends of mine who are not, once again, not sensitive to guys. These are guys who can joke about anything, who I can talk to about death. But I think there's still a little barrier there when it comes to the idea of your parent dying, or they're not sure how to respond to me talking about it. Because again, that's the most difficult thing for me, is that when I talk to my mom, or when I talk to my mom, when I talk about my mom's death, I'm never looking for sympathy. I don't feel like there's any missing piece that I'm going to get from somebody else. And if that day comes where I feel that, you know, there's people I can talk to. But when I talk to most people about it, it's like I am not looking for any kind of sympathy. I am not looking for any kind of condolences. You know, it was nice when it initially happened because it's kind of part of the ritual. People offer their condolences. But since then, I'm not looking for any I'm sorry. I'm not looking for any, oh, that must be tough. I almost like throwing it out there. Like my friend who, I think one of the reasons why I spend a lot of time with this friend of mine is because her dad died about 15 years ago. And she's had other people die who are close to her. Like when she was 18 or 19, her boyfriend, who I think was 17 or 18, and he was not a druggie. He was not a junkie or anything like that. He was not, he had never, I don't think he'd ever used heroin. But this kid sold him methadone, like this little kid stole methadone from their mom and sold it to him. And he just thought, I'll try it. And he OD'd on it and died. And he died in bed with my friend, and she was like 17 or 18. So she woke up to find his dead body. So he'd never done any hard drugs before, but he tried methadone once, and it killed him. Just insane. And we were talking about him the other night because she was helping me do some of this stuff, helping me with my mom's stuff. And she was saying how he died you know, before the social media age before people really leave a social media footprint. And that's so interesting to me. You know, that's so interesting to me, the idea of somebody dying just right before that. Like, it's one thing if someone dies years or decades before that, but that sort of window of time where the internet existed and we were transitioning into this world we're living in now, but this person died right before people had social media or profiles. 
And I wonder about that because there's there's a couple kids that I went to school with. Like there was a kid who I went to his birthday in fifth grade, I think it was fifth grade. And he was just it was weird. He was new to school and he invited a bunch of us to his birthday, but we didn't know him. And so it was incredibly awkward going to this new kid's birthday party. And he had a highly unique name. You never see his last name anywhere. There's never been another person with his name as far as I know. And there's no imprint online. There's no online footprint for him. Not even on those white pages websites. You know, there's sites that pretty much show you where someone is, where they live. It'll tell you their age. We live in a world of databases. So he's not even in any of these databases that track people. Either he changed his name or I've considered that maybe he died. You know, I knew this kid for one year in fifth grade, not even a year. I think he went to my school for a matter of months. He transferred in and transferred out. You know, he just came in and out. I went to his birthday. Some other friends went to his birthday. One of my friends, one of my childhood friends still brings him up as a joke because he was just like, this kid's in your life and then he's gone. But there's no footprint whatsoever. And I'm like, you know, he very well could have died in 1998. Or 2002, you know, and there would be no record of that. So with my friend and her boyfriend many years ago, you know, 16, more than that, it's probably like 18 years ago that he died. You know, she she's talked about how there's really nobody left. You know, there's nobody, aside from his mom and her, there's really nobody left who actively would remember him, and there's no online footprint. So it's just, it's it's a very strange little window of time. Um, but I've always kind of bumped up against people when it comes to death. You know, I had a friend die when I was 16. He was a very good friend of mine, and he died of cardiomyopathy, which is when your heart is too big. And what's funny is this kid really did have a big heart. You know, you think about kids when you're growing up and they, they're, they're so combative. And he was never that way. He was always really easygoing and fun, but also adventurous, not meek. My friend Ryan King, he was a daredevil, actually. Like when we first started skateboarding and doing all that, you know, he would do crazy things, really dangerous things. And he, you know, and he was fun. He was a lot of fun. But what's so interesting about him is all of my other friends, we all had kind of these hot and cold combative relationships, which is just true of kids who are around puberty age. But Ryan was never like that. He was always really easygoing and nice, but confident. He wasn't a doormat. And he was truly big hearted. And so it was always funny to me that he died of having an enlarged heart. But when he died, you know, initially we didn't know what to think. You know, initially it's like that was the first real death that I experienced, the real death close to me. And what was so strange about it, though, is in the years to come having conversations about it, I just realized there was a disconnect between me and some other people who knew him. You know, where one of the things was is that he died at 16 and he was a good looking kid and everything, athletic into punk into rock and roll he was he was into cool stuff but he you know he apparently was a virgin when he died i don't know how this was found out you know he and i never talked about that kind of thing 
But apparently somebody, somehow they knew, like his parents knew that he was a virgin. I don't know how. But what was so strange to me is it, it got around that like, oh, he died a virgin. He never got to experience sex. And back at the time, I remember thinking, so what? He didn't get to experience sex. It was, it was just it's such a strange thing to be preoccupied with. And that came up again years later when I was talking to people about it. They were like, you know, he didn't even... And they didn't mean it in like, oh, he died an incel. Like this kid, I'm sure he was days away. He was probably weeks away from losing his virginity. Knowing him, you know, he was... Like I said, it's like he was a good-looking, charismatic kid. Who knows? Maybe he would have... You know, never mind. Uh, but... It was just one of those things that I remember thinking, like, well, woulda, shoulda, coulda, like, who cares if he didn't lose his virginity? It just seemed like such a strange thing to focus on. And I'm just using that as an example, though, because I realize when people die, they're constantly thinking about, like, what they wish that person would have or could have done or what they could have experienced with them. And I understand that. But I really haven't felt that way about my mom. Maybe because I did get to spend a lot of time with her. You know, she and I had talked about going on certain little trips. And it does make me sad that we'll never go on them. But I guess I, my mind just doesn't go there. I just, I don't know whether it's I've trained my brain or I'm just at a place where it's just not how I think, you know. And, and who knows what I'll feel in the future. But I know that so far... I really haven't sat there and thought like, oh man, I wish that she could have seen me do this. Oh, I wish she could see me now. I don't feel that she's not seeing me. I don't feel that she's not experiencing this in some way. You know, so that's a part of it as well. But I, I hear that from a lot of people, even people I'm close to. You know, when they've had people close to them die, they, they'll say things like, oh, you know, if they had only made it to their next birthday. It would have been so nice to celebrate that next birthday with them. They were only two months away from their such and such birthday. And I would never fault somebody for thinking that. I'm simply saying that it's foreign to me. It's, to, it's the equivalent to me of saying, oh, you know, he, he didn't, he died a virgin. And it's like, there's always going to be things we didn't do. There's always going to be things that were left undone. Like, what is a complete life? Well, I guess I'm helped by the fact that my mom lived a full life. When I think about her, I'm like, she lived a truly successful life. She had no regrets. Not that she didn't have little life regrets or that she, she probably would have preferred to have done certain things differently. I just mean she did not regret her life. She was so ready not in a morbid way, but in the sense that she lived a truly good life and she was a truly good person who treated people right and made good decisions. And I could see that. Literally, as she died, I could feel that. And that made the process that much more profound and interesting and helpful. And, you know, there was even something where a family friend died, you know, earlier in the year that my mom died. I think he, or he died, I think, a year and a half earlier. And he had just retired. He died, I think, within months of retiring. And another family member of mine just told us the news and kept commenting, like, he just retired. 
He didn't even get to enjoy his retirement. Like he, he had just retired. It's so sad that he had just retired and that he didn't. And I was just like, well, now he really retired. It was once again, one of those things that seemed very foreign to me. Like it didn't make it any more sad or unfortunate that he had just retired and he didn't get to enjoy a long retirement. It seemed like a strange thing to be preoccupied with. And not strange as in bad, but just strange to me, foreign to me. Where it's like, well, he, he, he retired and then he really retired. And a lot of people wouldn't be comfortable with that joke. And that just tells you everything. And, you know, going back to my friend who was, who's been helping me, I think one of the reasons why I'm more comfortable with her is because, one, she's experienced death firsthand, and she isn't flippant about it. I think I can be flippant about death for sure, but she isn't very flippant about it. Like, she doesn't necessarily feel the same way about her father's death, or her... She's had a lot of friends die, actually. But, uh... Or her boyfriend's death. You know, she doesn't... She's not flippant about it, but she brings it up casually. And, like, she still has... For example, she still has a piece of his collarbone. When they... You know, when they incinerated his body, I guess they allowed her to keep part of his collarbone. And one time I was at her house like four or five years ago, and I think I was still drinking at the time. And so we were just drinking and talking and talking about death because it comes up, you know, with people I know. And she got out this box and she had his collarbone and she let me hold a piece of his collarbone and she like put it up on her eye like on her face, like on her cheekbone. Like she put, she, she like tilted her head back and put his collarbone on like the ridge of her eye socket so that it just rested there. Not for any symbolic reason. It was just like something to do with it. And I remember laughing, and but it was also, it, it wasn't like, it was, it was very cool to me. I felt very comfortable with death, you know, just in that way. Like where it was like, here my friend found her boyfriend's dead body in bed. She woke up to his dead body at a young age. And she was allowed to keep a piece of his collarbone, which is an interesting bone to piece of a bone to keep. And we're just hanging out and she just like put his collarbone on her eye socket and tilted her head back so it balanced there. And I was like this is glorious. This is just not and it's not morbid. Someone would say it is, but I think that's just their own discomfort. It was just, it simply, it just simply felt like a, a moment of spiritual connectivity. It felt ritualistic, even though it was casual and not, you know, it's not like she did this regularly. It's not like she had a ritual she did where she placed his collarbone on her eye socket. It was just something she did in the moment, which is why it was so glorious. So it's stuff like that. And so that I think... Having a friend like that has been very crucial to me because she's been through it, but she can also do things like that. And you never know who's also going to be there for you. Because I have to say, I don't want to get into resentment here, but the last couple years, it's been very interesting to see who hasn't been there. And I don't keep tabs. I don't keep some resent, this notebook of resentment where it's like, these people haven't checked in on me, this this person never talks about my mom, but you're aware of it. 
And I think part of that might be their discomfort. And I guess this segues into another point, but I have a relative and I'm not going to name them. And I don't want this to come across like venting or complaint. But I have a relative who, who's manufactured a lot of family issues over the years to a pathological degree. And it's, it's actually one of the only things in my life that twists my insides up. Because they've basically created this... You know, Krishnadas, the musician, but he does these Q&As. And what I like about Krishnadas, one, he was the original singer of Blue Oyster Cult before they were Blue Oyster Cult. But he quit and went to India where he had, you know, a spiritual epiphany. But I like Krishnadas because he's not a guru in the sense that he doesn't do a lot of talking. He's primarily a musician who just does chanting and, you know, spiritual music. And it's not even my kind of music, but since Coronavice started, he does these live sessions that I'll occasionally watch. And then he does these little Q&As. And because he's not a guru or a speaker type guy, he gives very real, sometimes terse responses to people's questions. And a lot of people, unsurprisingly, ask him questions about interpersonal drama. They have things going on with people in their life. That seems to be the source of most of our troubles. People in our lives are doing this thing, and it is bothering us. You know, it's that kind of stuff. And people, unsurprisingly, ask him for guidance about those things. And one of his common responses is just to say, you know, that's their story. He uses the word story, and it's so simple, but it, it clicked with me. And so that's how I think of it now. When I think about these people who have crafted these manufactured narratives and weaved these tangled webs out of their relationships and sometimes invented stories to kind of fill in their, their lar- the larger story of their life, you know, in response to these people's questions, Krishna Das will say, you know, that's these people... That's their story. They've created that story. And you just have to distance yourself from it. You just have to let that go because people, they think that they are creating meaning in their life by putting together this story for themselves. And it's what you see on TV. You know, it's people's need to dramatize. It's the American Idol Syndrome. Where somebody can't just be a good singer. This person can't just get on stage and be a great singer. They have to give it a backdrop. They have to talk about how, oh, he's a single father and one of his eyes falls out. And if he wins American Idol, he's going to purchase this magical glue that keeps his eyes from falling out of his head. And it's such a struggle being a single father working in a warehouse being a forklift operator with his eyes falling out all the time. But if he wins American Idol, he's going to, you know, put his kid through college and his eyeballs are never going to fall out again because he's going to get the magical glue. You know, it's like everything has to have that sort of story to it. We've created this culture around that. Like it's not just enough to hear powerful stories and consume them as entertainment or to consume them for meaning or just something. 
we create that out of our own lives. And I've seen this happen with people I know, and I have to remind myself that this person in particular is doing that. But it's become so pathological. And I, I know this person so well. And I would never tell this person what to think or, or how they should feel about their own life. But a lot of it kind of centers around this manufactured victimhood and this phony martyrdom. And I wonder about people who do that. You know, when people are self-created martyrs, very rarely are they true martyrs. Usually they're victims masquerading as martyrs, but they're not even actual victims. Because you can't be both a martyr and a victim. What makes martyrdom so impressive is that something is happening to that person that would otherwise make them a victim, but they're choosing not to be a victim, and in doing so, it's serving some greater purpose. But people who make themselves a martyr also try to they try they try to couple it in tandem with this victimhood and you can't actually do that those are two things you can't actually create out of yourself you can't make yourself a martyr and you can't make yourself a victim because by making yourself a martyr or making yourself a victim you're actually making yourself neither one of those things because both of those are things that happen to you And maybe there's a level of choice involved in how you deal with it or how you feel about it. But neither of those are things that you can create out of yourself. And so by trying to do it, you end up becoming the opposite or at least not becoming that thing at all. And so this person I know, this, this family member, they've, they can't decide whether they're a martyr or a victim and the story they've created to illustrate that, it's become so dishonest. And I believe that they truly believe it. And there are things, you know, there might be things that I'm unaware of. And again, I would never tell them what they should think about their own life experience. But I've personally witnessed them distort and exaggerate and outright manufacture events that I was personally witness to or not witness to but nonetheless there to the point where I can no longer actually trust their version of events and you can see it in their eye you can see it in their eyes plural and you wonder like you know because when you when someone does that it's very difficult to back down it's very difficult to walk it back. When someone's created a story for themselves, especially a story of manufactured adversity and some sort of half-assed victimhood meets self-created martyrdom, it's almost impossible to walk that back. And this person keeps it up. They can't seem to stop. Social media has played a big role. Social media has played a big role in this. And therapy has as well. Where therapy doesn't seem to have helped, it seems to have given this person new words they can use to their advantage. And it's unfortunate to see, because I just wonder, at what point are you going to be 
at what point are you going to be over this? And I know that's an unfair question to ask of somebody who has a serious problem, especially if it's a mental issue or if there is some real trauma they experienced. But, you know, at some point you do have to ask that question. Like, at what point is it going to be like, are you going to do this until you die? Are you going to do this in, or if you outlive everybody else, are you going to do this until everybody else is dead? Because so far you're still doing it and people are dying. So when do you stop doing this? And they might never stop and that's okay. It's not my, it's their story that they've created. And I'm not the only one who's aware of it. You know, it's a lot of people have become aware of this over the last, I'd say it's, it's ramped up over the last decade. And it's made it very difficult to talk to this person about anything real. And most people who know me know who I'm talking about. And I would hate for this person to hear this, but I don't think they listen to this show. But I have to talk about it because one, it's one of the only interpersonal things that disturbs me. And it disturbs me deeply. My mom's death, nothing. Not, not that it's nothing, but just that it doesn't disturb me. It was beautiful. It was a natural process. But somebody who's still here weaving a tangled web and, and treading down this... You know, you think about pathology, and I like that word. No matter how much it's used, I like the word pathology. And you think about pathology, and like when I visualize pathology, to me it's like this very strong river. It's a river with a very strong current. And when a behavior is pathological, it's like somebody is in that current and they might be splashing, they might be making a commotion, but they're in it. And there's very little you can do about it. There's very little you can say because they will pull you into it. And that's been my experience with this person is there's no way to engage with them about the past or really the present. All you can do is basically just be nice and love them. But to engage with them is really to to have them thrash and splash and scream and pull you into the current. It's, it's it truly hysterical behavior. And um, so part of my life is just accepting that, being like something happened where this person... Something pathological is going on with this person, and they are in a fast-moving current, and they seem to believe they're getting a sense of meaning out of being in that current. And it's, it's interesting because this person is very functional in many ways. They have a lot going for them, and that makes it that much more surprising. And it, this person has been through a couple of very serious events, very serious life events, and in that moment, this person does extremely well. This person handles these moments very well, but then milks those moments. And can't, can't seem to avoid finding new ways to milk a sob story. Can't seem to avoid finding victimhood and martyrdom in anything and everything that goes on in their life. And it's just... 
it, it, it's come up again and again and even more recently. And I just, it's disappointing because it's like, I just wonder when is this person going to admit to themselves that they've created this story on on a false current let's go with that pathology river idea they've built all of this on this fast moving liquid current and i just keep wondering like when are they going to admit it to themselves because to even hint at anything related to it to even to even offer your own differing perspective even if it's not a dismissal of their perspective to even offer your own perspective even if it doesn't directly conflict with them seems to draw out this just severe hysteria and it's just it's the most bizarre thing and i see a lot of it though even though this didn't start in the last couple years I see a lot of it these days, and I guess I should get away from that. I just had to talk about it for a second because it's just, it's the strangest thing. And it's strange to see it in somebody's eyes, to see in their eyes that something is off. I've been talking about the eyes a lot lately, and I recommend everybody pay close attention. There's a reason why your dog and your cat look you in the eye, why they watch you. When they, when Batty's like, what's he doing? When Batty wants to know what I'm up to, I look over and he is staring right at my eyes. When I come across a deer in the woods and it wants to know what I'm up to, it's watching my eyes. And a lot of people don't like that I avoid eye contact. But the reason I avoid eye contact is because it's intense. It's not because I'm untrustworthy. I avoid eye contact because it's almost too much and it distracts me. In order for me to actually formulate my thoughts... Like in a conversation with somebody, I don't make sustained eye contact because I find eye contact very distracting. And if I'm looking for my thoughts, I don't want to be distracted by someone's eyes. Yeah, there are situations where you have to make eye contact with somebody. If you're trying to, you know, if, if you're being professional, if you're being a professional, you need to make eye contact. But I find eye contact distracting in many cases. That said, I understand its value. And if you want to know what's up with somebody, look at their eyes. And I, I mentioned that about TikTok videos, where I mentioned people who have very big, wide eyes. And when I do that, it feels so unnatural and uncomfortable. My eyes don't do that on their own. They, my eyes don't get big and wide. You can't see white all the way around the pupil, all the way around the iris, whatever you call it. You can't see a, a complete circle of white all the way around my eyes. But I see this over and over again in these TikTok videos that make their way out of people ranting, whether it's about the VAC, the pro-VAC, anti-VAC, whether it's that, whether it's something else political or social in nature. I see these people making videos and you can see white all the way around their eye. And that's not right. And this family member that I'm talking about, about 10, no, it was exactly 10 years ago. I had a conversation with them where I saw that for the first time. I'm sure I'd seen people throughout my life with those eyes. Of course I have. But I was having a face-to-face -face conversation with this person where they said something that was not true and tried to tell me that my memory was wrong. And my memory 
is too good. I don't want to be self-congratulatory here, but I don't forget anything. And that's a detriment in many cases. I remember too much. It actually causes me more grief because I remember every little thing. When I forget something, I celebrate because it's amazing. You know, a friend of mine in high school, my best friend, one time he had to tell me, he was like, you know, when I tell a story and I say, for example, and like you were there and I say like, oh, there was this guy and he had a green shirt. You always butt in and say like, oh, no, his shirt was blue. And he's like, and it doesn't matter. And he was cool about it. It wasn't like he was, you know, criticizing me deeply, but he was just kind of saying like, let it go. And it was an interesting moment because I was like, you know, he's right. Because I I do have such a detail-oriented memory that when I was there for an experience and a friend is telling a story, and if he's even going to mention the detail of a guy's shirt, if it conflicts with my memory, which I believe to be right, and is, (laughs) I'm going to be slightly irritated. It's not going to, the story isn't going to feel right if he says that the guy had the wrong color shirt. I stand by that, but at the same time, he, he made a great point that I've kept in mind ever since then. That was like 20 years ago. I've remembered it ever since because he made a great point. Sometimes those kinds of details don't matter if somebody's just telling a story. But point being, I'm just, telling, I'm just saying all this to tell you that I have a really good memory to the point where sometimes it's an issue for me, where I wish I could forget more things. I wish I didn't remember as much as I do. And yeah, that doesn't mean that my memory can't betray me. I'm not overconfident in my memory. But to have this person tell me that my memory was wrong about something that I distinctly remember and to hear them distort it and exaggerate it and to see in their eyes that they were not well, to see a full circle of white and their eyes bugging out, that was the first time I remember noticing that in another human being, that there was something not right about those eyes. And it terrified me. What it reminded me of is, I think I've told this story before, and I think I've talked about it semi-recently, but, you know, when that old lady with dementia rear-ended me a few years ago, and I had to chase her down and get her to pull over, and she had no idea that she had hit me, when she stepped out of her car And I was like, you ran into me. You ran smack into the back of my car with your car and you kept on driving. And when she had no idea, her eyes were so blank. I knew she wasn't lying. She was an old woman with dementia. And when I saw her eyes, they were completely blank. She had no concept that she had just driven straight into the back of my car. She totaled it. Turns out it completely compromised the undercarriage of my car and I had to get it replaced. You know, I had to to sell it. I had to sell it for scrap and get a new one. So, I mean, she ran smack into the back of my car enough to total my car at a stoplight. And when I saw in her eyes that she did not know that, I realized I was living in a completely different reality from this old lady who hit me. And it terrified me. Death doesn't terrify me. What terrifies me is knowing that this person is living in a completely different reality in waking life. 
And that's how I felt about this family member whose eyes were bugging out of their head as they were trying to convince me that a certain event was different than it actually was. I realized that I was living in a different reality from this person. And I knew that I was not the one living in the alternate reality. And what's strange about it is when that old lady hit me, it was about four years ago, four and a half years ago. In that exact moment, I thought about this family member's eyes. It wasn't that I reflected on it later. It was that in that in the exact moment that the old lady got out of her car and I saw her blank eyes, it reminded me exactly of this family member's big bulging eyes where I was like, they are not seeing the same world I am. And that is scary. It's not somebody dying. It's not somebody no longer being in this world. It's that this illusory world can be even more of an illusion than I even realized. Not that I was unaware of delusions, not that I was unaware of mental illness, not that I was unaware of cognitive decline. But when you actually see it, it's one thing to read about schizophrenia. It's one thing to read about a mental issue. And I don't know what mental issues are at play here. But it's simply sitting there and looking at another human being in the face and realizing they are seeing a completely different world from you. I mean, I've talked about this before, of course, but what it reminds me of, too, is when people say that somebody resembles somebody they don't, it bothers me. I don't get angry, but it scares me. And this has happened my entire life. But when somebody sees somebody and they go, oh, he looks just like Kevin Bacon. And the guy doesn't. That terrifies me. Because I'm, <laughs> it's like my memory. I'm very, <laughs> I'm proud of this. I think I have a great ability at seeing a resemblance. I mean, it reminds, my friend Miles made a joke the other day where there was a, an ad it was like a, it was like a magazine article or an ad that like had a picture of Madonna with blonde hair and it said Madonna channels Marilyn Monroe for this photo shoot and Miles joke was just blonde lady because she didn't channel Marilyn Monroe at all she didn't look anything like her there was nothing ab- there was nothing about her that looked like Marilyn Monroe Madonna doesn't look like Marilyn Monroe so like Miles joke of just blonde lady It was just blonde lady looks like blonde lady. And I laughed at that joke because I'm like, because he's the same. Like my friend Miles, one of the reasons why I love him, this is the only reason why I love him, (laughs) is because like I can always count on him to point out a strong resemblance. I can always count on his ability to see a proper resemblance or lack of resemblance between people. Like he was telling me years ago, like this is like 15 years ago, we were, we were at his old house and we were talking about this subject and he was, he was talking about like lookalikes and he was, and he had this girlfriend who was a beautiful girl and you know, she was a girl that she was a woman that a lot of guys liked in town. Apparently, you know, a lot of guys like had crushes on her, like she worked at a record store, but, uh, he, uh, he was like, she looks like Ted Raimi. I didn't even know who that was, but I think he was the Evil Dead director or something, or he's an actor. I don't. 
He had something to do with Evil Dead or horror movies, but he's a guy, Ted Raimi. And he's like, Tess looks like, I said her name, but uh, anyway, she looks like Ted Raimi. And uh, he showed me a picture and I was like, holy shit. (laughs) I was like, you're you're right. (laughs) And so like having friends who can do that, who can accurately tell you, my friend Nick, who I grew up, my best friend growing up, unsurprisingly, he knows a good resemblance when he sees one. We were at, we were at a TGI Fridays in seventh grade, and he nudged me, and there was this employee, a waiter, walking around in one of those like big stupid hats. Like this is something from the the late nineties that I don't know if it probably hasn't been forgotten since people are going down memory lane with the nineties every fucking day. But they didn't just make big cat in the hat hats. Cat in the hat hat. Cat in the hat hat. Cat in the hat hat. You know, they didn't just make big cat in the hat hats that you could buy at, you know, the mall at Sam Goody, at Spencer's. At Spencer's? Did you buy that cat in the hat hat at Spencer's? Did you buy that cat in the hat hat at Spencer's? Um, it wasn't just that you could buy a cat in the hat hat at Spencer's. They made these stupid variations of that where it was like, it was like a Mad Hatter cat in the hat hat style hat, but it had like almost like these like metallic fabric horns coming off of it in different shapes like almost like it was going everything was metallic at that point like you could sell anything like all the game shows i've talked about this before all the game shows had like metallic sets and regis philbin wore like metallic blue suits with like a silver tie and pizzerias were opening up all over the country in the suburbs that had metallic decor like that it was like the aesthetic of the future that was the actual like we're, we're leading, we're gearing up for the year 2000. So everything has to have different shades of metallic blue and very glossy metallic decor. Like everything had those little crisscrosses on it. Like, like the decor had those little crosses. It's supposed to look industrial, but it's really smooth and it's designed for, you know, you know, game show sets and stores like porn stores had that decor too. Um, and I've talked a lot about that. Where, where am I going here? Um, those hats. So like the, like, so they made these like variations of like the, the big top hats. I mean, they're called a top hat, right? Of like top hats, but they were big and puffy and they had like all these like shapes coming off of them, like horns and like they were all pointy. And so this guy at TGI Fridays, he was wearing one of those because at TGI Fridays, you dress weird. Oh, dude, it's so fun. They got stuff all over the walls and they dress weird. I mean, Office Space made fun of that idea of like your flair. But that was a real thing. Like you go to TGI Fridays and it's like the guy working there had the new Spencer's Gifts top hat. But Nicky nudged me and he goes, Double J. And if you're not familiar, Double J, Jeff Jarrett was a pro wrestler who at that time he had gone from being like a country Western guy who wore like pink and white, uh, weird like outfits to, he started wearing metallic decor because pro wrestling. I mean, you, you want to talk about that, that metallic decor and pro wrestling went hard into that. The entire, you know, WWF late nineties, early two thousands aesthetic was exactly what I'm talking about. It might as well be who wants to be a millionaire. It might as well be the weakest link. It might as well be the new, cool, fancy, wood-fired pizzeria that opened up in your town. Everything had dark metallic decor. 
And so Double J himself, like if you're not familiar with that era of pro wrestling, he went from being this like flashy honky tonk country guy with long bleached blonde hair and like pink outfits, blue outfits to wearing like metallic shorts and he had short bleached hair. And so this waiter at TGI Fridays, he looked exactly like him. Like he had short bleached blonde hair with a goatee and he was wearing this big metallic top hat with things sticking off of it. And Nick goes, Double J. And I look up and the guy looked exactly like Double J to the point where he, he started to notice that we were looking at him. And our joke became like the, before we left, we imagined that he was going to come up to us and go. Just so you know, I don't look like Double J. But anyway, so I value that in my friends. And I find it extremely disturbing when people don't have that sense. And it is a sense. It is a sixth sense. One of the six senses. That's something people don't realize. It's not that there's one sixth sense. It's that the sixth sense is like the wild card of senses. It's that whatever it is that you're noticing that most people don't notice is the sixth sense. And one of the big ones for me is resemblance between people. And it's not that I'm always perfect. It's not that I always get it right, but I would say my sense for resemblance is very strong. And I see it, you know, <laughs> of all places, I see this in particular on this mafia discussion group that I go to where people will post surveillance photos or they'll post like wedding photos of an assortment of mafia members all hanging out. And sometimes they're unlabeled and people will be like, I think that guy's this guy and it doesn't look anything like him. And I'm pretty good. Like, if I know what a guy already looks like, I'm pretty good at looking at a surveillance photo or a... This is just all about how good I am at things, by the way. But I'm pretty good at looking at, like, a photo of a, guy, of a set of guys and going, that's this guy. If I've seen him before, I can kind of figure it out. But it blows my mind. People will see guys and they'll be like, that guy looks just like this guy. And he couldn't look further from him. It's like maybe he has the same hair color. But other than that, there's no resemblance whatsoever, and it terrifies me because I'm just like, you are living in a different reality. If you are seeing that person and that person, and you think, you, you think that they actually look similar, similar enough to comment on, you are living in a different world than I am. You are seeing a different world than I am. And so having friends like Miles who can be like, yeah, you know, you ever notice how so-and-so looks like so-and-so? I mean, he sent me a picture a few months ago of some guy, like some chubby celebrity with like long hair and like facial hair. I didn't even know who he was. And he, he didn't even look like, like his build and stuff didn't look like Miles. But he sent it to me and I immediately saw the facial resemblance. I immediately, he was even able to do it with himself. He was even able to recognize that he looked like this celebrity. And people will tell me I look like people, and it, that's the worst of all. This girl that I used to work with who's really hot, she's fucking amazingly hot. And I got along with her really well. But uh, we were always just friendly. Um, long after we stopped working together, I think she was trying to hit on me or something, and it was just flattering because she's awesome. But... Uh, she sent me a message and she was like, do you know who you look exactly like? 
but you're better looking. So she like she framed it as like I, I think she was like trying to like kind of start a flirty back and forth, which I don't do. Um, so it was just kind of like foreign to me, really. But uh, at least at this point in my life. But and she sent me this guy from. I think like what's that show called? Uh, I, I keep wanting to say like Twenty Four Hour Fiance. If that's not it, you know what I'm talking about. It's something like that. It's like 24-hour fiancé. It's one of those types of shows. If nothing else, it's one of those types of shows. And she sent me this guy. And like beyond being like probably from the same ethnic background, like beyond this guy probably coming from a Northern European background, and he had, you know, short brown hair, kind of an average build, and like stubble, facial stubble. In case you're wondering what kind of stubble I mean. In case you're wondering what kind of stubble I mean. But uh, beyond that, there was no resemblance. And I was a little bit insulted. Because even though she said I looked like a better looking version, which gave her a little wiggle room, it was just that, I mean, I think the reason why I didn't flirt back to her is because it scared me that she would think that looks like me. It terrified me that she thought this guy looks like me, that there's anything more than just a, that she was sitting there watching this show and she thought that guy looks like Eric. That guy looks like that guy I used to work work with. That's how she sounds. But the fact that she would see him and what if she heard this, that'd be amazing. Um, But if she was watching that show and and it's not even a thing where it it was insulting. Like I wasn't insulted by it. It wasn't like, oh, how dare she? It was simply she was wrong. She was wrong. I do not look like that guy. I do not resemble that guy. And the fact that she would tell me that tells me that she is seeing a different world than I am. And it's not that two worlds can't come together. It's just that uh, sometimes that's a big problem. And so that's something I keep coming back to. And I, I know I'm a weird guy. Like, I know that I have my own strange way of viewing things. But there are certain objective facts that I don't think you can get around. I wouldn't expect anybody else to have my spiritual beliefs. I wouldn't expect anybody else to have my philosophical beliefs. Those are subjective. Even though I don't consider them subjective, like, they're not, I don't think of them as things that I have personally decided to do or that are limited to my own perception, I understand that my take on them is subjective. But there are certain objective facts. It's kind of like somebody being colorblind. Like when somebody looks at two people and says, they look exactly alike, and they don't, that's like they're colorblind. And I think maybe you can think of it that way. But you never hear anybody talk about it. You never hear anybody point that out, how, oh yeah, some people are colorblind. I guess science hasn't gotten there yet. Science hasn't gotten to the point where we can classify people who are extremely poor at seeing the resemblance between people. I mean, people do that with relatives. Like if two people are brothers and someone knows it, they'll kind of force a resemblance in their mind, even when it doesn't exist. Like they'll be like, they look just, oh, they're brothers. They look just like each other. Oh, they look exactly. Oh, you look exact. You know, you look exactly like your brother. And that's just, that's people trying to reconcile dissonance. Because when people see two siblings and they don't look anything alike, that's dissonance because in our minds, siblings should look alike. So as a result, 
people, especially women, I've noticed, do this, where they, they see two siblings and they go, they, they do some sort of mathematical equation in their head that makes them say, you guys look exactly alike, even though they don't. There's something about the idea of siblings looking alike that we like, and women like that in particular. I swear to God that's true. There's something in women's brains that loves it when siblings or family members in general look like each other. And they'll even manufacture it when it doesn't exist because they like the idea of it so much. If you haven't experienced that, well, I don't know what to tell you. I've seen a lot of women do it over the years. And it's not a criticism. It's a fact. Women like it when there's a family resemblance between people. And when there's not, it feels dissonance. I think they like resemblance in general. You know, because women say that. Like, like, that's one of the things women say to each other. You look so much like your dad. You look so much like your mom. You look so much like your brother. Oh, you look so much like your You look so much like my dad. So much. You know, that women say that way more often. Men generally don't unless there's a strong enough resemblance. Like, if you meet somebody who looks exactly, exactly like their dad, you might go, whoa, he looks a lot like his dad. Like, I went to my friend's wedding a few years ago, and his dad really did look like an older version of him with short hair. And I was like, whoa, he really does look like his dad. I didn't know that. I didn't expect that. But you don't, you don't go up and say, you look so much like your dad. You know, you look so much like your dad. You don't say that to him, really. Or you, if you do, it's sort of like, man, I didn't know you looked so much like your dad. You say it in this kind of, you almost say it under your breath. Like, if you're a man, you almost say that like it's something you're not supposed to say out loud. And I'd be curious what men think of this. I know that my friends would agree. I know that my male friends would tell me, yeah, you know, that is one of those things that you, it doesn't really feel right to say it out loud. And that's not conditioning. You're not conditioned as a man to not point out resemblance between family members. That's just something that it naturally feels kind of wrong or like it's built in. And I say all kinds of things that go against my intuition, but still, I think there's something built into men that when we see a family resemblance from people, we're not very glib about it. We kind of say it like it's something you're not supposed to acknowledge out loud, but if it's a strong enough resemblance, you kind of have to say, oh, okay, yeah, you look exactly like your dad. But anyway, I don't know. I'm going to continue on for a minute here, but I don't I want to go to bed, actually. But um, last couple of days, elections have been going on, apparently. And I don't know, being in the, in the state I've been in, where I'm going through old family heirlooms and I'm going through my own belongings. I'm, go- I'm truly going through everything. I've gone through every box, every closet, things that I, you know, I kind of took a surface glance at when my mom died, but I just haven't dealt with. Not for emotional reasons, just simply because I just didn't have to. And it's a lot of work. And I've had very little emotional response to it, really. Like, the most emotional I felt about it, if you want to talk about emotions, I know you do. I know you want to hear about my emotions. Um, my mom had saved a lot of children's books. 
And like going through those, I'm just like, it's just, it, there's a lot of stuff that just reminds me how much my mom loved children and how much she loved her children. And so going through children's books, like seeing little inscriptions written in, into them, you know, seeing like the sort of books, almost all of them involve animals, you know, as most children's books do. But you can see that our family in particular, we really went for the, the anthropomorphic animal books. And so going through those, it's like, you know, a lot of them are my sisters, some of them are mine. You know, I, I still, I saved some action figures and things over the years, or my mom did, she saved some of my action figures. So I've been going through those, deciding like what I can sell, you know, just, just looking at them. And, and what's weird is like my memory of, you know, speaking of my memory, I'm able to remember the names of, of like G.I. Joes that I only saw in passing once. Like I'll see a G.I. Joe figure and I'm like, oh yeah, that's Dusty. I'll see this figure and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, that's, uh, you, know, you know, I just, I know their name. Oh, that's Bonsai. Not just the big guys. It's not just the famous guys. It's like, I'll see these random figures and I'm like, oh yeah, I know that guy's name. You even remember like which gun goes to them, which sword. I don't know why that's such a weird thing. Like I, I haven't seen some of these figures in probably 28 years, you know, close to definitely over 25 years since I've played with some of these figures and stuff. And it's weird how I can like see the figure and I'm like, I know what gun goes to him. I know his name. Just a, a, a weird little, it's just trivia, but it's so, I guess, I guess because action figures were such a crucial part of my creative mind. Like action figures were not a way for me to have fun and find simple entertainment. They were a way for me to craft little stories and set up little dioramas of figures. And that's the friends who I enjoyed the most were the friends who were into that too. I didn't like having kids over who just wanted to throw toys around and make noises and launch missiles. I wanted friends to come over who would spend a lot of time, probably we would actually spend all of our time just setting the guys up and none of the time actually playing with them. So I think part of it is that there was such a level of like creative investment in what I was doing with these figures that it's like I'm able to re retain all of these little weird trivial details, but they're actually helpful right now because I'm like, I want to see if this figure is worth anything, which brought me to something horrible, which, you know, it's funny with Coronivi, the way that it, the way that you kind of forget about certain periods of it where... There was that early period where they were like, everybody's stockpiling masks. Oh, no, did you hear about this guy? He bought 10,000 masks and he's selling them for $10,000 each. Oh, what a freaking asshole. Oh, my God, what an asshole. Oh. You know, people were saying that shit about people. And those people, maybe they are assholes. I don't know. I don't care. But I forgot about the whole where the word price gouging was a big deal. And I was trying to sell an action figure on eBay, and it was a, a character from like the series Mask, and the character's name was Dusty, not to be confused with the G.I. Joe named Dusty, but it was from the series Mask, and the character's name was Dusty. And I went to go list it, and it said, only authorized sellers can sell this. It was that red text. And it said, only authorized sellers, only authorized merchants can sell this. Do not try again. 
And it's, it also said, because of price gouging. And I thought, this can't be true. Some obscure 1980s action figure is not, getting, is not victim of price gouging. Like, even if it's collectible, nobody is gouging prices on this figure. And so I, I googled the message, and it, was, it turns out that eBay set up a filter during the first month or two of coronavi hysteria in 2020. So we're talking about like March or April 2020. They set up a filter that I was unaware of, where if you sold anything with the word mask in the title, you couldn't sell it. You had to be an authorized seller to stop price gouging. And the fact that it's November 2021, it's over a year and a half later, and this filter is still in place, and it's preventing me from selling an action figure. And I, I was so pissed. I was so irritated that they did this, that they still had this. Who's even, has that even been a concern since then? Masks are everywhere. Nobody has trouble getting a mask. People don't want to wear their masks. I walk down the street and I seriously still see just discarded masks everywhere. I live by a high school. Today I, I had to walk to the post office and I saw tons of kids. They're all just walking out of school wearing their masks. You know, nobody is lacking a mask right now. Why do they still have this price gouging thing in? Who's, who's hoarding masks and selling them for tons of money now? Which asshole is doing that? So I, I contacted eBay customer service because I was like, yeah, I could choose to not list this action figure. I'm probably not going to get much money for it. You know, who knows? But at a principle, I want to list this action figure now. And customer service was prompt. The next morning I woke up and I had a message and I expected the message from customer service to be like, oh, we approved you. We approved your listing. Instead, Sobina or whatever their name was, was like, oh, see, our filter automatically detects the word mask and dust. It wasn't just the word mask. Their filter also picks up the word dust so the fact that mine was a mask figure with a character named Dusty, both of those things flagged. And she said that. She, the customer service girl, she said, the fact that your listing uses the word mask and Dusty both trigger our filter. So instead of, if you, she said, if you use both of those together, you can't list your item. So she was like, I suggest what you do is... Just use the word mask in your title and only include Dusty in the description. So basically, I had to compromise over something like that. It just it made me remember all of the bullshit that's still going on. But it, remi it, it, rem it reminded me of all, and I, I saw something too, like before I heard from customer service, I tried to Google to see like if people had found a workaround or just to find some kind of explanation for why it wasn't letting me list this. And I found an eBay community message, you know, you, they have like that public, like where somebody, like a public helpline where you post a message and, and like everybody from eBay support to like other eBay users can respond with information and help help you 
And somebody had posted like back in, I think it was like April, 2020. And this woman was like, I'm making my own masks that I want to sell on eBay. And, you know, I'm not hoarding manufactured masks. I'm making my own and I want to be able to sell them on here. And somebody responded who did not work for eBay, just another eBay seller. And they were like, how about instead of selling your own mask? Well, the, they, well, first they said like, they were like, well, the reason the guidelines are in place or blah, they were defending this stupid rule that eBay made. And then they were like, and how about instead of selling your masks, how about you donate them? So somebody who is, you know, clearly on the right side of history, clearly better than everybody, clearly a better eBay user, a morally upstanding person whose life is going to matter much more than ours when they're in the dark, cold underworld. Their life is going to matter a lot more than everybody else's when they're just another name on a tombstone that some girl is doing her nude photo shoot in for her OnlyFans 7.0 account. Now, that's cruel, but... uh. Sometimes somebody deserves a cruel response. But this person, it's just just the fact that they were like, first of all, eBay's rules make sense because of blah, blah, blah. And second, how about if you donate your the masks you make instead of trying to sell them? It's just, and the person, the other, like the, the original person responded and they were like, well, guess what? I donated 200 masks already. I just happened to want to sell them too. It just made me, you know, especially being in this state of mind where my I'm completely disconnected from all of the, all the stories that people, because that's a great example. That's somebody's story. Like the way that person responded with their grandstanding, that's part of their story. And, you know, seeing that though, just, I felt so disconnected from it. And, you know, it's just one of those things. And just that feeling too, of like eBay still filtering out being like, well, how about instead of trying to sell an action figure from the mask series named Dusty, you just don't even use the words that you need in order to sell the the action figure. And the idea that that's an acceptable response. It reminds me what I've talked about a lot on here, where I had that coworker who, used to work for a major cable internet service provider that is notorious for its awful fees and policies and how that person, even though they were only a customer service representative at one point in their life for that company, they were extremely defensive of that company because we used that company at our job. And whenever we had a problem with that company, it seemed like this person was quick to defend them where they'd be like, well, their fees make sense because the employee has to stand up and and like walk across the room to print the receipt. They would say things like that or like, well, the reason why they do that, you know, they, it's like, yeah, I get it that you worked for them. And as a result, you had to internalize some of their policies so that you didn't hate your life, but you don't work there anymore. And the rules suck and they, they're overpriced and they provide a low quality of service for what you pay. And everybody knows it. Everybody. Why are you defending them? You don't work there. But things become ingrained in people. And like seeing this eBay user who was like, well, actually, eBay's filter system that doesn't let you sell masks makes sense. And it's a good thing, actually, because even though it hurts people who just want to be able to sell things with the word mask in it, it's actually a good thing. It just makes you think of the Vackers. 
It makes you think of everything. That is everything in a nutshell. That interaction, it's like when I was talking about the Eric Clapton comments, when I read those Eric Clapton, you know, whatever they were. I don't even remember what they were. Were they like Twitter comments? When, when Eric Clapton came out as anti-vac, anti-lockdown, how I read some of the comments where people were like, well, guess I'm not an Eric Clapton fan anymore. And you know what? He always sucked anyway. Oh, man. And there was like that comment where the person was like, if I could get all the money back from the Eric Clapton concerts I went to, I would donate it to mandatory vaccine research. Somebody said something like that. It's just that's everything in a nutshell. I know that seems like it's just about Eric Clapton. I know that what I'm talking about just seems like it's about eBay's mask policy. It is the full artifice. It is a microcosm of the macrocosm. It is actually representative of the full illusion. It is the mirage. And people are obsessed with it. They, are, they devote their lives to it. And they are sick. And I bet they have big eyes. I bet you can see the white around the entire circle of their eyes. I bet their eyes are bulging. And even though I'm ranting and raving, and to be honest, I've needed to do this been a little bit since I've gotten a good rant and rave out of my out of my system but I can promise you that my eyes are not bulging right now in fact my eyelids are a little bit sleepy while I'm doing this what do you make of that but anyway that was just something that happened while I'm doing this eBay stuff where I'm like yeah it's one yeah eBay you know there's issues with them but it's just this this filter thing and the fact that they they expected me to compromise and I'm like and I'm just thinking like they still have this in place and it reminded me too the way that every single tech company has something where if you post something on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram about coronavi or this or that, how it automatically includes some sort of message about, well, here's where you go to get the real facts, or this post contains misinformation, if they even let you post it at all. Not that I talk about that stuff on there, not that I even really use that stuff now. But uh, it reminds me of that, like in the same way that you can't even use the word mask or dust on eBay without it flagging you. It's like we live in this world of flags now, where everything is a flag. Everything you say online gets flagged for some reason. All of your interactions are with bots. All the comments are from bots, you know? It's just... It's just insanity. It's it's the full mirage, baby. It's the full mirage. And I'm just so aware of that right now. And I can't get sucked into that because you can easily think that nothing matters. Because I like life. I'm invested in life. You know... I take care of myself. I care about the world around me. I care about the people in my life. But it's just, I guess just going through old childhood stuff, seeing stuff, I'm just, there's two thoughts that I've had lately. One is that, oh, the world, it, it was truly a different world. And I'm not talking about two years ago. I'm talking about 15 years ago. Because the other night, it was about a week and a half ago, my friend was over helping me. And then she left and I went to bed and I couldn't sleep. It was like right when I started going through stuff and I was like, I need to go through my CDs. I have CDs from high school that I haven't listened to since high school. And I I wanted to check to see if I can sell them or just get rid of them to free up some space. And I was just looking, I spent a couple days just when I had spare time, just looking through my old CDs and just looking through music 
that I have. And there was stuff that I saw where it was like, it's stuff that people would still like. But I looked at it and I was, it was, it was interesting. I had more clarity than I've had in a long time where I just looked at it and I thought, I'm never going to listen to that again. Even stuff like Black Flag, like stuff that I bought when I was 14, 15, and I haven't sold it yet or anything, but I looked at these Black Flag CDs and I was like, there is never going to be another day. And I shouldn't say never, but I, I truly, I'm pretty confident in this. But I was like, there is never going to be another day where I just think like, I'm going to listen to Black Flag today. I just don't see that happening. And it's, it's nothing even wrong with Black Flag. It's just that means something completely different to me now. I look at it and it means nothing to me. There's tons of stuff I'm keeping. I don't feel this way about all music. But I see things like that that I was into. Like, I looked at a Bad Brains CD and I didn't feel that way. I thought, you know, I want to keep that. I looked at my Misfits CDs. I want to keep that. But like looking at Black Flag, I'm just like, do I need that? But then that's even like the best of it. You know, there's, there's crap. Even like someone, I was involved in like noise and experimental music many years ago, you know, still am to some degree, but way more involved. I was actually acquiring stuff, doing trades. And I went through this bin of stuff and it was like three, there was this big phase where everybody was making three inch CDRs and a lot of people were packaging them in DVD cases because it was cheap and lazy. I did one like that. I released a three inch CDR that came in a DVD case because it was very easy to do it yourself. You just bought a package of 50 DVDs, printed out the artwork, and slid it in. Burned a little three-inch CDR. It was, you know, it was fun at the time. But I had, like, I had, like, 10 or 15 of these three-inch CDRs that people released in DVD cases, and they were all crap. Every single one, without fail, was crap. And just to make sure, I looked them up on Discogs, and, like, they're listed on there for a dollar, and they still don't sell. And I don't say this to insult anybody, but I just threw them right in the trash. I was just like, this, nobody's ever going to want this. And it, it, and it, I didn't, it didn't come from a critical place. It just came from a point of view of like, that was a different world when there were a bunch of young men who wanted to express themselves and they were like, I can make a noise or ambient or drone album and throw it in a big DVD case that's going to take up way too much space in someone's bin with crappy digital artwork. And it's just, it's a whole different world. And it was fun. It was fun that people were doing that. Even the stuff that sucked, even the stuff that was forgettable. I don't have a sour opinion on that. But like looking at it now and I'm like, I listened to this once when I got it through a trade or something. And... I never listened to it again. Every single time I've seen it in the 20, 15 years since then, I just think that's ugly crap that's taking up space. But because I, I acquired it at a certain time, I didn't want to do anything with it. But it was just the other night, I just I couldn't sleep. And I just looked at that stuff and I was like, oh yeah, this is crap. And nobody wants to even buy it. You know, it would be a burden to even give it to anybody I know. So I just write in the trash and so my mind has kind of been in that place where it's like I'm and, and even just stuff that I didn't do that with. There's even stuff where like my it's a little better, you know, it's stuff that people released, whether it's like a tape or, a, you know, a CDR or even, even a CD. I look at it and I'm like, I have no interest in that. And that person was good at what they did. And this could go for any music. 
But I look at it now and I'm like, that was such a different world. That was such a different world where that was what people were focused on. We have crossed a threshold. My life has changed. My point of view has changed. Maybe part of it is just getting a little bit older. I'm sure that's part of it. But there's also been, we've entered a portal. And I still value material objects, so don't get me wrong. I'm keeping most of my material objects that I can. But looking at some of these where I'm just like, it was just such a different time where young men were just like, they just wanted to do something. They just, they found some niche interest and they just wanted to offer it. They wanted to do something and it wasn't all bad and it wasn't all good. And some of it was great. Some of it was terrible. You know, it's a whole spectrum of quality. So it's not really, this does, again, this isn't a critic, this isn't a criticism in the true definition of the word. It's just a, a general observation. It's just, this stuff is just from a different time and it's forgettable. And so I've had that feeling a lot lately, even looking at action figures, even looking at toys that my mom kept in storage, I look at them and I'm just like, what a different time. Because I went to the action figure section at, I think it was Fred Meyer not that long ago. I happened to be at, uh, or Walmart, it was one of those stores, where I went down the action figure aisle, because I used to enjoy doing that, even long after I got out of toys and action figures, even as a teenager and adult, I used to like going down the toy aisle and just being like, what are they making now? Because I've always loved the, like, the physicality of action figures. I loved, like, there was a period of time where, like, it was kind of the perfect sweet spot between like, like toys were advanced enough to where like the sculpts had a lot of detail, but they hadn't gotten too exaggerated yet. And I love toys from that period. Like some of the coolest toys to me are that the, the original Star Wars action figures from the late 70s and especially the early 80s ones, because it's like they have just enough detail to, to like capture your imagination, but not too much detail to ruin your imagination. Because that's what sort of bothered me later on. Like, I know, like, the McFarlane toys and stuff became very popular, where it's, like, ultra-detailed. Everything is ultra-sculpted and textured. And, oh, his belt buckle has this, this, and this on it. And that was a little too much for me. Where it's, like, there's a little too much detail. You want to hit that sweet spot where there's enough detail to where you don't feel like you're just holding a generic piece of plastic. But there's not too much detail to where, like, nothing is left to your imagination. And so I used to go down the toy aisle, like, long after I was out of action figures and all that, just to see. I just, I want to see what they're doing. But now if you go down the toy aisle, they have Fortnite action figures, which I know is a video game, which makes sense, I guess, that that, that would be a thing. They have pro wrestling action figures still, which is cool. But other than that, it's, it's a pretty sad sight. The action figure aisle today is a pretty sad sight because, you know, if kids are into that at all, it's when they're very young. It's not something that they invest in. There's very little investment in action figures these days. Very little kids just don't invest themselves in it. And so it's a very sad sight. And so like looking at my old action figures, I'm like, this isn't something that people really care about anymore. Some of that is just time. Some of that is just change. But it's also just a different world. And I think about the time where those things really mattered. Where, like, if your friend got a new action figure, like, I, rem- I remember, like, one of my friends getting a new action figure and calling me on the phone to tell me. 
He called me just to tell me he got this new action figure and like to invite me over to play with it, to check it out. So, you know, it's just, it was a different time. And that, it kind of gets me on the whole memorabilia topic in general, where, you know, the 90s were this, it was collectability mania, where everything was like preordained a collectible. It was called a collectible. Because the thing, you know, what made like comic books and toys from the 60s and 70s and early 80s so collectible is that they weren't, you know, yeah, they had like mail order collectibles. There was some stuff that was like limited edition and you knew it. But the reason why so many things became collectibles during that era is because they weren't planned that way. They made a limited number or they were testing the market. Like a certain action figure from the 70s would become collectible because they were just testing the market to see what sold. Or because of this, that, or this, you know, this or that, a certain action figure from a line didn't get as many versions made. Or there was a, a version that had a slight variation, and that became a collectible. You know, there was a lot of chance to it. It wasn't like the companies themselves were like, we're going to make this guy collectible. Like, I know in the original Star Wars figures, there was a figure called Yak Face, and he was a background character from Return of the Jedi. Got our Star Wars reference in. But there was a, a character from the background of Return of the Jedi who just shows up. You don't even, you barely even see him. And I never had this figure or anything, but he was this ultra collectible action figure because they didn't make very many of him. They didn't plan on making Yak Face some ultra collectible figure. It wasn't like the. Kenner who made Star Wars figures or George Lucas got together and they were like, you know what? Let's make Yak Face the most collectible toy in the world. It just happened that way. But you get into the 90s, which is when you had a lot of comic shops and collectible shops, a lot of sports memorabilia stores, because this happened in sports too. The same thing that I'm talking about played out with collector cards and records. It played out with everything that became collectible all kinds of memorabilia. And a lot of it happened by chance. But in the 90s, and I think it, it was probably starting in the 80s, but it, it really hit full steam in the 90s, and it was aided by the economic bubble. You know, the 90s were just such a glorious time economically for a lot of people that people had the money to spend on these things. So there was just this market for it. And what they started doing was like selling everything as limited edition or exclusive, special edition, collectible edition. But they mass produced all that stuff. Like I discovered this because I had some comic books that I found in storage, like, and I'd saved them all these years because they were like, it was like Ghost Rider number one from whatever like relaunch of the series was from the early 90s. Oh, and it has like a hologram cover. I looked it up on eBay, and you, you, you're lucky if you get a dollar for it. At the time, though, you were, you were told, like, oh, this is a special edition. It's issue number one. It's issue number one. It is a hologram cover. Oh, and this one, oh, this is, this is Amazing Spider-Man number 100. And it's reflect. It's got a reflective metallic cover, and you can fold out the cover, and it's really long and big. It's going to be worth something because that's what it was all based on. You would buy things in the '90s because you had this. You had it in your mind that oh, this is going to be worth something. 
Everybody was like this little junior investor. Families would do this. You saw it with the Beanie Babies stuff. There was this Beanie Babies documentary. It was a very short documentary. This kid made a, a documentary about how his father bought like all these Beanie Babies. So many Beanie Babies. Because he planned on putting the kids through college with Beanie Babies. He believed that investing in like buying like one of every Beanie Baby. And he had a whole system. It showed his basement. And to this day, he has it. Because the, they ended up worthless and he never sold them. Like he held on to them for too long. Because yeah, there was a small... I don't, I don't know anything about Beanie Babies. I had like two. People gave me like a couple cat Beanie Baby beanie babies as a gift or something trust me i was not buying beanie babies okay but uh you know my understanding is that like initially some people were able to make a little bit of money on it before the bubble burst but you you know i know girls got really into it but you had entire families because that's what i'm getting at here is the entire families like the parents got into this stuff where like families were like saving trade like they were like framing trading cards in glass because they're like this is gonna be oh dude it's cal ripkin jr's rookie card and it's a hologram because that was big everything was a hologram everything was metallic foil this is gonna be worth something oh if you get the complete set of trading cards it's gonna be worth something you're lucky if you can get five bucks for it today but uh, it was just this this documentary though about this dad who was he was planning on putting his son and daughter through college with Beanie Babies, and he had this whole system in his basement, like an entire wall of his basement had cubbies built into it, and each cubby was reserved for a different Beanie Baby. He had a system, and as of like two thousand eight or whenever this Beanie Baby documentary got made, he still has all these Beanie Babies. It's like he lost a part of his mind in that basement. The Beanie Baby basement. The Beanie Baby debasement. And that's what happened to a lot of people. I mean, this guy in particular, I mean, he put a lot of money and time and, you know, emotional investment in it. But just in general, I mean, I experienced just a little bit of that. Where it's like, I found this Star Wars toy in the closet it was like some see-through Obi-Wan Kenobi that you could get through the mail order. Like if you sent in a proof of purchase and five bucks or something, ten bucks, you got this see-through ghost version of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And the whole idea is that like special edition, oh, this is going to be worth something. Did you know this is going to be worth something? I looked it up. You're lucky if you can sell it at all. And if you do, you're lucky if you get a couple dollars. You're lucky if you get $2. You know, it's that kind of thing. But so many things, like the 90s really, the people who made a killing on all these collectibles were the companies making them because they lied to everybody. They were just like, oh, you know what? People love collectibles. You would go to the mall. There was a sports memorabilia shop in the mall, not just a trading card shop because those trading shard cops, trading shard cops, trading card shops, like, a good old mom and pop trading card shop. You would go there, and there'd be there was a uh, a store in my hometown, and it was just called Stamps, Coins, and Comics. The name of the store was that Stamps, Coins, and Comics, just literal. <laughs> and it was run by this old curmudgeon, of course, and he sold stamps, coins, and comics. 
and you know, yeah, he he sold some things for a high price, but it was still it was just tons and tons of those cardboard bins with comic books. It was very visually dry and unappealing. Like you just had to go through things. You just had to go through boxes of cardboard. You know, it was like just sorting through dust and cardboard. It should have been called stamps, coins, comics, and a whole lot of dust. Except if he said that today, eBay would flag him. <laughs> but uh, stamps, coins, comics, masks, and dust. Masks, masks, and masks. But stores like that were one thing. But I remember there was a store in the mall... And it was just a sports memorabilia store, but it was all ultra expensive. It was all like framed photos of of baseball players on like marble backdrops. It was metallic. It was that metallic decor. Everything was signed. You'd buy like you could buy like football helmets that were in a glass case that were signed. It was one of those sort of stores, and like everything was ultra expensive. And you know, I'm sure those stores exist in some capacity today, but most of them are online. Most of those guys are online. And that stuff doesn't sell like it used to. Like those guys cashed in on a bubble. And the manufacturers themselves did, especially when they made all this stuff, like the comic book companies, the toy manufacturers, the trading card companies. I mean, you even see that with records. Like, my sister gave me some of her old grunge records, and there was, like, a snakeskin Alice in Chains record, I think it was. It was an Alice in Reigns. I know I'm tired, because here we go. I know I'm tired, because I can't talk right. Oh, I know I'm getting old, because I can't talk right. But uh, my sister had some, like, Alice in Chains limited edition 7-inch EP that came in pseudo snakeskin. The sleeve is pseudo snakeskin. I looked it up, and you're lucky if you get six bucks for it. I might be exaggerating, but it's something like that. Like, it's something you would have expected, like, oh, this snakeskin Alice in Chains set, or this snakeskin Alice in Chains 7-inch, is going to be worth $1,000 in 10 years. It's not worth anything. She had a Metallica box set. It's that Metallica binge and purge box set. It comes with like a triple CD set of live performances. It comes with like two VHSs or three VHSs. It comes with a big cool booklet. It's in this big fancy metallic box. Metallic, always. Metallica. I was talking to Miles a couple weeks ago or a week ago, and I was like, yeah, my sister has that big binge and purge Metallica box set that she gave me years ago. I was like, I could probably sell that. And he's like, you're not going to get anything. I looked it up. Yeah, it sells for like 40 bucks if you're lucky, which is 40 bucks you don't have. But to ship that thing, it's like this big, heavy box. You know, it's just it's one of those things where you're just like, is this worth the 40 bucks? Maybe, maybe at some point, but not right now. And it's just that's just down the line, man. There was this bubble. And that was a different world. And you would save things for that reason. You would save ticket stubs, not for sentimental reasons. Like I was going through and I, like I found like a, like a Seattle Supersonics basketball ticket stub from 1996. You look that up and those are just selling for nothing. You know, and it, I, I, I'm not disappointed or that surprised, but it's just I'm just reinforcing the point that there what 
what transpired during the 90s was sort of this, I mean, it's kind of like a pump and dump stock scheme or something to me, where it was like all this hype was placed on, like, invest in this memorabilia, invest in these collectibles. You never know. Oh, if you get the hologram card, it's going to be worth blah, blah, blah. Did you know that's worth a billion dollars? And people would show you stuff. Like, you'd go over to a kid's house, and he'd be like, check this out. And he'd show you some collectible card, and it was always a hologram card. And he'd be like, the price guide says this is already worth $100. If you look it up on eBay now, it's selling for $0.50, if you even sell it at all. Just a weird thing. But nobody got in trouble for that. That's the interesting thing. Is like people got in trouble for boiler room pump and dump stock schemes. People got in trouble for stock fraud. Nobody got in trouble for what happened with collectibles. Because everything's limited edition. Which seems like a, you know, it's hardly an epiphany for me to say that. Did you know everything is limited edition? But it's true. It's it's like everything is limited edition. So nobody was stopping a company from making a million of something and saying it's limited edition because it's limited to a million. And that's what they did. That's what a lot of these manufacturers and businesses did is they called something limited edition. Meanwhile, they mass produced it. Maybe they didn't mass produce it as much as they did other things. But they certainly mass produce those. And so I guess just going through old things, I'm just acutely aware of all this. And that was a fun time. It was worth it for the fun. It was worth it to be a kid, like even just going into that sports memorabilia shop where there was nothing in there I could ever afford. But going into that sports memorabilia shop in the mall during the peak years of the mall, I am nostalgic for that. I am nostalgic for that experience where you could just go into a sports memorabilia shop and you knew that you could never buy anything in there, but you just looked around and you were like, man, they got Deion Sanders jersey signed and you can buy it in a big glass case. Oh man, look, they got Emmett Smith's rookie card signed and oh, it comes with a photo of him and it's plastered on marble. Oh, they got this. A lot of that time period is you were just going into stores and strip malls, going into stores in the mall and just looking at things and being like, whoa, they have this. And then you can easily kick yourself now. You know, I found an opened, I found a, an action figure I had where the package was signed by Todd McFarlane. I didn't meet him. But I think I've mentioned it before, but he and his brother-in-law, they were both from Canada, but they went to college in Washington State. And then they opened up a comic shop together, Todd McFarlane and his brother-in-law, in Puyallup, which was like an hour away from where I lived. So one time my mom took my friend and I there and we bought stuff. And everything was signed by Todd because he co-owned the store with his brother-in-law. Everything was signed by him or a lot of it. So you could get like a signed Todd McFarlane action figure in the package for relatively cheap. And so I bought like a, a, a Spawn figure. But guess what I did when I got home? I opened it because I, I would rather play with the Spawn figure than leave it in the package. But I found the package in my closet. I found it in an old box 
And it's a, it's an empty package. It's, it's an empty action figure blister pack, as they call them. And it's got Todd McFarlane's signature in Sharpie, but there's no action figure in there. And I saw that, and I was like, man, if I only left the figure in the package. But that's the same version of, like, people talking about my friend and being like, did you know he died a virgin? It's like, woulda, coulda, shoulda, who cares? Who cares? He died. He lived, he lived a very good life up to that point. I opened this action figure. It was signed by Todd McFarlane. Maybe I could have gotten 50 bucks for it today. Based on the standards of these things, maybe I would have gotten 50 bucks. I probably got a lot more enjoyment out of just playing with it rather than wondering about what it was going to cost. Right now, it would have been nice to make that extra 50 bucks, to be honest. Right now, I would have appreciated maybe having 50 extra bucks. But at the time, I wanted to play with that Spawn figure. So that's what you deal with. And that should inform your attitude toward death. I mean, thinking about, you know, I know this is tying things full circle, but I do feel like it makes sense. I don't feel like I'm forcing it. Where when I look back at that bubble where everybody was into collectibles and memorabilia and you saved things. If you went to a game, you saved the ticket stub both for nostalgia and sentimentality and because you thought it might be worth something. But part of it was just the fun of doing that. Part of it was just like, oh, whoa, this is valuable. This is a jewel. The 90s were a great time for the endless pursuit of jewels because you went out looking for that stuff. And I guess that relates to another experience here. Oh, but just to tie that up, like, like it does go back to death because it's like that time period died. And all of that stuff that we invested in, even if it was just a trading card or a comic book or a ticket stub or an autograph, whatever it was, or a record, you know, later on, obviously. I mean, records fortunately do, a lot of records do maintain, retain some, some, uh, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. You know what I'm trying to say. A lot of records do increase in value or retain their value just based on how things go. Some of them, at least. But uh, with these other things, you know, part of it was just like it was what you were into at the time and it was exciting and you felt like you were obtaining jewels. And that's what life is, too. It's like when people talk about my friend dying a virgin and they don't say it in a cruel way. But like what I hear is, oh, he didn't get that next jewel. He didn't. Did you, oh, God, it sucks that he died before he got to the next jewel. Oh, she died. She died before she found the next jewel. That's what I hear. And if she was alive, like like if my mom was alive, you know, my mom died like a month and a half before her birthday. It would have been cool if my mom made it to 72 years old. I wouldn't have, you know what I mean? Like that would have been cool if she lived another month. But I don't feel like she lost anything because she didn't. I don't feel like because my mom didn't... Because my mom died at, at 71 years and 11 months. I don't feel like she lost out on anything that she would have gotten by living another month. I don't feel like there was some jewel awaiting her. And so that's kind of how I feel about all this stuff that I'm talking about. Where it's like, you know, in this endless pursuit of jewels... I like jewels. I love some jewels. 
They're fun while you have them. And this is going to be kind of a cliche point, but it's true, which is that, you know, the whole idea is to enjoy the jewels while you have them and not think of them as some investment that will pay off down the line. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be smart. Like I take care of my body. Like that's an interesting thing is that I'm more comfortable today with death than I was when I was destroying myself. Like when I was drinking, you know, fifths of whiskey to myself, I thought that I was okay with death. I was way more terrified of death. Even when I was inviting it, I was doing more to invite death. Meanwhile, the reality was, is I was more uncomfortable with it. Whereas now I'm doing very little to invite death. I'm more comfortable with death, but I take care of my body. I eat healthy. I feel better that way. I just feel better taking good care of myself. I like doing it. And, you know, but I'm also more comfortable with dying. Like, I don't take care of myself because I'm scared to die. And I'm like, oh, if I, if I eat right and I exercise, I'm going to live longer. That's not my motivation at all. I can tell you, that's funny because that's a lot of people's motivation. I just, I never even really thought about that. The reason why a lot of people eat well and exercise is because they're like, you're going to live longer. Oh, you want to live longer? You want to live longer? You better eat right and you, you better exercise. Oh, you better think positive. Stress will kill you. That's not in my motivation at all. I am not motivated by longevity. I'm happy to live longer. If I live longer, cool, but I don't take care of myself to live longer. I just realized that. I just realized that right now. I do it because it feels better to do it right now. My life is of a higher quality right now. I couldn't give a shit if I live an extra five years. Oh God, I'm going to live an extra five years and get more jewels, have more fun experiences. I'm going to get laid more, dude. Dude, if you live an extra five years when you're 89... Dude, if you take care of yourself now, you're going to live till you're 95. That means 10 more years of getting laid, dude. You know, whatever it is. When you're 95, you might get laid one more time, dude. That's the reason why I exercise today. <laughs> but, uh, no, it's like I my mind couldn't even possibly go there about it. It's just I do it because it's better now for me now. You know, it feels better to do it now. I enjoy the process. I, it's a system you get down. But anyway, that's what it's that's what it's all about, you know. And you know, so much of this does come back to the jewels. And it's funny when we think of jewels not as something that brings us pleasure right now or makes us feel good or content or mean gives us some sense of meaning right now. It's funny when we think of jewels as an investment that will pay off and it turns out to not be true. Because that's that's the Beanie Babies. Like, I can imagine that family, just to go back to that, I can imagine that family in the late 90s or early 2000s, whenever it was, I can imagine them going out as a family, like, fighting for Beanie Babies and being like, we got the jewel. Oh, we got the rare cat. And thinking, like, we got this jewel, and it's this jewel is going to give us so much money someday. We're going to be able to sell this jewel. It's just so funny to me that then that, that family found out, guess what? These jewels lost their worth because they were, it was a bubble. 
It was a fake. You know, it was all a mirage. That's what it is. That's what it comes back to. It's all a mirage. And I see that, you know, the last couple of days I've seen people fighting about politics again. There are elections where some people liked the results, some people didn't. Some erections, there was a, an erection, there was an erection in Virginia. There was an erection in Virgin. There was a virgin erection. And a lady got a erected governor. And some people are mad and some people are not mad. And when I see people fighting about that, it's not that all the issues are totally trivial. It's not that it doesn't impact people. But when I see the way that they're talking about it, when the way they're reacting, they might as well just be getting mad at Eric Clapton. They might as well just be like fighting over an eBay policy regarding masks, selling masks. It's all the same energy. It's all the same it's all this, it's just, it's just the same dynamic. And I'm, I'm feeling so removed and detached from that. And it's very difficult to connect to most people as always, but still for that reason, especially because I just see what people talk about. And it's just, I don't feel like I'm part of that world at all right now. I feel so far removed from that world and I couldn't be happier. I have a lot of stress right now. I have a lot of worries right now. But I'm happy that I'm distracted. You know, I'm happy that my life right now doesn't involve that. And it's very difficult to place myself in it. It's very difficult for me to look at even people I agree with. This isn't a thing about people I disagree with where I'm, I'm seeing things that I find disagreeable. And I'm like, I do, you know, you know I, I'm seeing people say things that I generally agree with. And I'm just like, I don't even have the the drive to care. I don't even have it in me to agree with you, even though I do. And that sort of sums everything up. It doesn't even matter if I agree with you, even though I do. Because that itself would probably be me thinking about some, some investment for the future. It would probably be me being like, oh, if I agree with them on this, it'll be better long term. And yeah, you have to care about that stuff. You have to give a shit. But there's also a part of me that's like, this is all so pathological. People are in their rivers. People are just getting carried. I don't think there's anything I can do. And I mean, speaking of death again, death and politics, you know, I think back about, you know, this friend of my mom's whose husband died a long time, uh, died a long time ago. And everybody's allowed to have their own relationship with death, you know. I would never tell anybody else what to think. But it, it was just, it was interesting to me because he died, I think, decades ago. And she said something to the effect of, like, it was when Obama bin Biden got erected. And she said something to the effect of, like, I know my husband's looking down, like, smiling, you know, that Obama beat Trumpsfeld. And she's totally allowed to feel that way. That is her experience with her husband who passed. I mean that. You know, I mean that respectfully. But my mom had just died, you know, a year earlier. And it was so strange because I, I just remember thinking, my mom doesn't give a shit. My mom's dead. And I do believe in some sort of, sort of continuation or afterlife. I don't know how to define it or what it is because guess what? I don't know. I have a sense for it. 
I don't think my mom just went black and she just turned into a corpse and that's her entire story. I don't believe in that. Not because I choose to, it's just simply not how I feel about about this process. My own spiritual process, as well as hers and everybody's, that's just not how I feel. I don't feel that it's, I don't have some black and white atheist, the lights go out and that's it. You know, I think back to like my mom's little brother who later become a, he became a doctor actually, but I think it was him when he was a little boy, he had this profound realization. He was, he was really young, but he just said to my mom, he said, you know, when people die, it's, I think it's like when, uh, you unplug a lamp. He's, he's like, I think when people die, you just, the light goes out, but it's like that energy goes somewhere. You know, he just said some, it was just some like from the mouth of babes moment. It doesn't even sound real, but it was, you know, it was something that her little brother just thought. He was like, when people die, I think, I think it's just like pulling, you know, it, it, it sounds fake just saying it, but it wasn't. And my mom repeated that story over the years because it blew her mind. She was a little girl herself. This is her little brother. He just made this casual observation about death. And it's just, that's how I feel about it. It's immeasurable. But anyway, thinking about like politics and stuff, it's like, even though my mom hated Trumpsfeld, and she would have been, and she didn't like Jabama either. She said he was creepy and cheesy. Creepy and cheesy. That was how she felt about Jobama. Somebody reminded me of that. Her friend reminded me that about that. Uh, but she would have been very happy to have Trumpsfeld gone. But I, the thing about her being dead is she's no longer invested in the mirage. I can tell you that if, if my mom was looking down on the world, she's not this figure looking de- like looming over our world being like, yes, the election went, oh, the Obama won the election. Just not what she would be doing. That's the mirage. She has no, she has no business being invested in the mirage anymore if she's dead. So somebody else, if they, if their loved one is dead, they're allowed to deal with, with that by saying, oh, they, they would be so happy that this happened or that happened. But that, that to me is like, it's another form of, I don't know, like, oh, they, they would have loved this jewel. They would have loved this. Oh, it's too bad they didn't get to see this. Because it's always bothered me, too, when someone says, oh, he's turning in his grave. Oh, your father would be turning in his grave right now. No, he wouldn't. He's not invested in the mirage anymore. He's moved beyond the mirage. She's moved beyond the mirage. And while you're here, you have to participate in it. While you're here, you craft a story for yourself. While you're here, you collect things. You go after jewels. You like the idea of things, sometimes more than the thing itself. Because that's what the collectible craze kind of was, is that people liked the idea of these collectibles, in some cases more than the thing itself. Oh, I got this trading card. You know, they like the idea of a collectible. They like the idea of memorabilia, sometimes more than the thing itself. 
And that's all, it just shows you that it's all a mirage. And that doesn't mean it's meaningless because it's what we're participating in. If you're participating in a mirage, it's meaningful. It's like somebody saying, oh, you know that movie isn't real? Or like I always point out with the pro wrestling atheists, do you know wrestling is fake? Yeah, but when you're watching wrestling, you're getting something else out of it. You're not enjoying it because it's fake. You're enjoying it because it does something to your imagination. It stimulates you in some way. You watch fictional movies and read fictional books because they stimulate you in some way. And if they don't, well, you don't deal with them. You don't read them. And that's what life is as well. Like, life is a fiction too. And I know that sounds pseudo-profound, but it is part of this mirage idea I'm talking about, this illusion, where it's, it's not that, you know, you go for what stimulates you. Hopefully on a deeper level. Hopefully not something that's just transient and passing, because it turns out those things aren't usually very good for you anyway. You're participating in the mirage, which makes it real to you. And if you do the wrong thing, it hurts, and it sucks. (laughs) And if you do the right thing, you usually feel some level of satisfaction. You feel generally good if you do the right things. Sometimes there's random stuff that sucks. Sometimes there's unavoidable stuff that sucks. My mom dying sucked. But it didn't really. I I don't think I can honestly say that. I don't think my mom dying can suck. Because it was beyond that. It was the closest I've ever been to being beyond the mirage. I wouldn't say that I saw completely beyond the mirage, but when I was there by myself behind the curtain in the ICU, watching a bloody, beat-up body that had been ravaged by necrotizing fasciitis, yet still retained all of its beauty, all of its serenity, all of its wonder, and when I watched life leave that body... I think I can say that I saw just for a second beyond the mirage. And because of that, I don't think I can ever say that that experience sucked. Even though there was loss, even though there was grief, even though I treasured this person more than anybody else, truly loved this person, my mom. Her death gave me a glimpse beyond just for a, a, a little second. And I floated for two straight weeks. No, I didn't literally lev- levitate. No, I, I didn't literally levitate. But I felt like I was floating. I felt like a hand, an invisible hand, had picked me up by the head and was holding me like just a foot above the ground. Not like I'm flying through the air. All of my experiences felt like I was experiencing the world. I mean, it's almost like if you've ever gotten up on a footstool in a room on your house or a chair, like you get up on a stool or, a, or you stand on a chair in your kitchen. And even though you're in the same room, you're like, it's kind of weird to be seeing things from this point of view, even if it's just a footstool and you're just like a, you know, a matter of inches or a foot higher than normal. You're like, this changes something. 
That's how I felt right after my mom died. I felt like I was looking around my house. I was going to the grocery store. I was driving my car. And it almost felt like I was standing just on a, on a small stool. Just enough to where I was like, my vantage point is just a little bit different. My experience is just slightly different. Whether or not I was seeing beyond the mirage, I, I think so. Not completely. Excuse me, a little burp there. Not, not a usual part of this show. I couldn't avoid it. But that was the thing that was so interesting is, you know, I talked about it on here, but it was like certain people doing rude things. Like a lady made a rude remark to me at a grocery store like three days after my mom died. And it was the funniest thing in the world to me because it was so fleeting. It was so transient. It was such an illusion on her part. And I knew that I didn't have to participate in that illusion. I knew that nothing in my life, even though I'm still here, I knew that nothing in my life required me to participate in that. And I didn't feel bad for her. I didn't feel any... I just thought she thought that was the right thing to say then. And it was stupid and funny. Because it doesn't make it good. It's not like one of those things where the fact that a woman made a rude remark to me in the grocery store because she thought that I shouldn't have walked around her or cut in front of whatever she she thought I was doing. It wasn't like one of those stupid, like pseudo spiritual, like everything everybody says is beautiful. Even the woman getting mad at me at the grocery store is beautiful. It wasn't anything like that. It was just it was still stupid of her. But it was the funniest thing in the world, and I felt no investment. I felt like I didn't even need to participate in it. I feel a little bit of that right now, and it's probably because I've had to go through so many of my mom's things. And I wish that I could share this. Like, my family hasn't been a part of this at all, and I love them to death, and they've been helpful in other ways. But they haven't really been a part of my mom's death. They haven't been, to the, they haven't been down here. You know, they haven't visited Olympia. They haven't been in her home where I live. And I say that only because it's like whether or not they want to participate in, in that is up to them. But for me, it's like there's something glorious about it. And I wish I could share it. But I understand they might feel differently or it just might be a lot. We've all dealt with a lot. I don't say that. I don't want that to come across like I'm like, oh, my family hasn't done this. I don't mean it like I don't mean it in that way. I just mean it in the sense that I wish this was something they could be a part of. And I don't know that they could. My mom and I had a unique bond. And I think that's why she and I were able to talk about death. I think that's why I ended up touching her as she died. I think that's why I was holding her hand as she died. I think that that was my experience. And I would have been happy to share it with other people, but something my uncle said to me that was so profound before she actually passed is he had dealt with the deaths of both of my grandparents who he lived with, and they died in their mid to late 90s, so they lived long lives. 
Um, but uh, he he said, you know, there's no higher honor than being with them at the end. And to this day, that gives me chills. You know, because I I knew that he had been through the same process, and uh, I would I stand by that. He's right. There there was no higher honor, and and having that close bond, you know, put me in a unique position to experience that. In some ways, I think they let me experience that by being there and alone. Because how many people can say, I know that people who work in the medical profession, I know that there's a lot of people who experience this in a more casual, I don't know if that's the right word, but a more practical way. But how many people can say that they have been in a room alone with their loved one when they die? My friend can. But to have the circumstances be so perfect, I am so grateful for that. And that's another reason why I can't say it sucks. Because I was there. And and the, the circumstances were brutal. They were tough. One of the hardest experiences of my life. (laughs) One of the hardest experiences of my life. But it all kind of fell into place somehow perfectly to where I was in the right place at the right time to simply be there. And that's what this whole episode has basically been about is learning how to be there or setting up your life in such a way to be there. And that's so difficult to do. And no matter how many times someone says, live in the moment. Oh, you just got to live in the moment. I don't think they really know what that means. And I don't think I do either. But when you're in that moment, you know it absolutely. And nothing else can distract from it. And so I think being here and going through her stuff again, feeling very little attachment to most of it, like she had a collection of old books, and I'm just like, I, I wish more of them would sell. You know, it's, not one of the, it's like one of these things where I've spent the last year looking at some of these books. I don't need to spend any more time looking at them. Some of them I might keep. But still, I don't need to keep her old book collection. I'm not a Charles Dickens fan. I don't need to keep her Charles Dickens books. I don't need to keep this or that. You know, so I, I'm not I'm not in this mindset where it's like, oh, I need to keep everything or I need this or everything that my mom touched is going to be sacred to me forever. I'm not in that mindset at all. But going through her things again, you know, getting rid of some things, keeping some things, just going through it, period. It does give me access to that feeling again. And it makes me look at other things, if if not from the same point of view, a few inches lower, but still floating. And if you pay attention, you might experience that yourself. You very well might go through experiences that allow you to feel like you're floating. And for whatever reason, it's when you're floating, even just a little bit, When you feel just a few inches off the ground, it's those experiences that make it that much easier to see just a little bit past the mirage. And even though you might not be able to see completely beyond it, 
you at least know that it's finite. And I think that's one of the biggest troubles that people have is deep down they know that this is a mirage. But it's very difficult for them to understand where it begins and ends. And because of that, they're unwilling to accept that it even is finite. They think that it is the whole of their being. Which is why when someone dies, they try to relate to them through the experiences of the living. Oh, I wonder what... Oh, it's, oh it sucks. He's never going to have sex again. Oh, if she only had this birthday. Oh, I wonder what she would have thought of this election. It's not that the people thinking that are wrong. Or, or bad at processing death. I don't, I don't mean to say that I'm better at this than them or anything like that. I just, it seems very foreign to me. It seems like such a foreign thought. To me, it's like saying, oh, you know, I wonder what that dead person would think of this thing that's completely fake. And I'm like, death is liberation from that. But you can't kill yourself to achieve that. You can't force it. A natural death, though, liberates you from this mirage. I truly and fully believe that. And it feels incredibly foreign to me to try to understand death through the language through the points of reference that the mirage gives us. So I just choose not to do it. But sometimes you do have those experiences yourself where you see just a little bit beyond it. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.